John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Matthew 28, 20, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you, Jesus. Kev, come on up. It is my pleasure today to introduce you to uh, my friend and mentor, my pastor, uh, Kevin Butcher. Uh, there are a lot of kingdom connections with Kevin in our church. Uh, first of all, he uh, married uh, Brian and Shane Berkey 25 years ago. And so you got to see Sam Berkey lead worship today for a wedding that you got to do 25 years ago. It's pretty special. You owe me. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any other organization in the world where that kind of thing happens where there's a unity and connection that the, that the Spirit does. Kevin was a pastor for um, over 30 years in the Detroit area. He now leads a ministry called Rooted Ministries, which cares for pastors. I am one of those. Uh, he came here about seven years ago and led a, um, a marriage retreat. And, um, and then he's been meeting with me off and on since that time. Uh, Katie and I have got to know his wife, Carla, a dear, precious lady. We uh, had an opportunity to be with them for a few days in May. We went to Colorado together, just Katie and I, and spent some time with them. And I'm um, just really grateful for who you are, Kevin, who God's made you to be, who you, how you have called out Jesus in me. I love you. I love you. Um, Kevin has written a couple books that are worth your time. First is called Choose and Choose Again, and is a series of stories of people who chose to follow Jesus in the hardest of times and through failures and disappointments and ups and downs. And um, it's back there at the back. There's another book called Free, Rescued from Shame-Based Religion, Released into the Life-Giving Love of Jesus. And that's what Kevin is all about. Uh, he believes and he's experienced in his own life that we can be free from shame because of Jesus. And I'm sure we will hear a lot about that today. And likely. Uh, Kev, yeah. love you. Love you. Can I pray so. for you? Yeah. God in heaven, we thank you for the gift of this brother to us. We thank you for his ministry uh, to me and to Katie. We thank you for his ministry to our staff and to our elders this weekend as he has been with us to, to think and to pray and to explore what has happened the last four months and where you're taking us. And so thank you for his ministry to us this weekend. And God, may you now speak to us through him, your son, Kevin Butcher. Amen. It's such a delight to be with you. And it's not often that I stand up to talk or preach or share or teach, whatever you'd like to call it, that I have to collect myself first because I'm so choked up about the way I sense the Spirit of God moving in a community. It just doesn't happen very often. And so, you know, I don't, you know, I've lived a long time on the planet, and I did pastor for 35 years, and I've been around the world shepherding pastors and churches, so maybe that makes what I have to say mean something to you. But I'm just going to tell you that Jesus is in this place. And it's palpable. And um, uh, 
I can't help but think of the people outside that don't know the love that you know. And so my prayer for you in this next season is that somehow um, the, the movement here of the Spirit of God might um, continue to move out there, not proselytizing, not uh, trying to convert folks, but just letting them experience and feel the love of Christ that is in you because that love will draw them home to the one who loves them most. I'm almost tempted to call my wife and say we have to leave our three daughters and grandchildren in Colorado and come to Fort Wayne and live. I said almost. So uh, just a little bit about me so that you won't just think I'm a talking head, come in, fly out, whatever. I've spent so much time with the church family this week and... So anyway, if you check out the screen, um, yeah, Rooted Ministries, it comes from Ephesians 3, that you might be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ so that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. You'd be surprised how many pastors know about the love of God but have not experienced the love of God for themselves. And that indeed was my experience. And thus we formed this nonprofit after we left full-time pastoral ministry to be present to pastors. If you look at this next slide, this is just a picture of our staff team. Um, every one of those folks, there's a couple spiritual directors. There's a therapist. Every one of those folks there, except Sue on the far right, she's now moved on to some other things. But the rest of that team of five are either pastors, have been pastors, or um, are the kid of a pastor. That's my daughter, Andrea, standing right next to me there, who is our, um, who is our administrator. This is the most precious group of people I've ever had the privilege of working with. They dearly love Jesus. They know the love of Jesus. And we have about 100 counseling appointments a month with pastors around the country that are so desperately in need. I don't know if you know this, but about 40 to 45 percent of pastors today um, if they could, they'd probably leave ministry to find another way to make a living because of the pressure in pastoral ministry, especially in this era. Um, next slide. I think, you know, maybe this will work for me. Should I try this? Um, when I asked my, my communications guy to put up a slide of my wife and I, this is what he did. And, and, he, and he giggled while he, did, while he did it. But those babies on the left were myself and Carla. She was only 20 years old there. And, um, and then on the right... Um, is my wife and I just a couple of years ago. She is absolutely the love of my life after 46 years. And I must say, lest you think it's too fairy tale-ish, she and I also drive one another nuts regularly. And yet, because we're two different people, yet we love each other so dearly. And you can really see how pastors don't really make a lot of money because I'm wearing the same shirt today that I wore back then several years ago. It's my preaching shirt. It's like my collar. And there, there's the rest of the clan. Three daughters um, today are 40, 37, and 33, and two sons-in-law. We're only missing a fiancé in that picture. And then we have six precious grandchildren, including two baby granddaughters that were born about two years ago now, 10 days apart. And they're just, like, setting the world on fire right now. And that brings us to our topic this morning. So... I want to tell you a story. My daughter Andrea was um, 
in sixth grade and was getting bullied at school. We didn't know it. It was her first year in middle school. She was getting bullied, and she became suicidal. Um, she wrote a letter, a note about that. My wife found the note, and so, as you might imagine, we uh, pretty quickly tried to pull her out of that school situation and put her in another school. We put her in a Christian school, which, for whatever reason, in this particular case, wasn't all that much better than the, the other uh, situation. She was playing softball on, on, on the team, and, and she would come home crying. She was already kind of depressed, and she was crying because no matter what happened with the score of the game, my daughter never got you know put in the game. And so, um, of course, as a dad who wants to defend his daughter, I had a few thoughts about a conversation I'd like to have with that coach and praying that it would only be a conversation. So I actually went, I was so disturbed about it because we were so concerned about our, our, our daughter's emotional and spiritual health that I went to our therapist and asked her uh, to help me find a way to talk to this guy and to fix this situation. I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, Kev, your daughter does not need you to fix this problem. She simply needs to know two things, that you love her and that you are with her, that you love her and that you are with her. And so I said, all right. So I went to the next softball game, true to form. This guy, just so, he was just oblivious. God love him because God does love him, but he was oblivious. And uh, it was the end of the game, toward the end of the game. Everybody had gotten in the game except my daughter. And I got to tell you, there was a moment, you know, where, where, where the powers of darkness are sitting on this shoulder and they, the, the, the light is sitting on this shoulder. And that, there was the coach right over there. And I was, I was like, you know, the old football player in me was kind of heading that direction. But I remember what my therapist said, she, and, and I think what God was saying to me that morning and maybe to us this morning, she doesn't need me to fix this situation. She needs to know that I love her and that I'm with her. So instead of going over to the coach and having a come to Jesus, I went over to where my daughter was sitting on the bench, and she was sobbing. And I looked down at her. I can hardly tell the story without getting choked up myself. I looked down at her, and I touched her on the shoulder. And she looked up at me, and I simply said, and she, the tears were running down her face, and I said, are you okay, sweetheart? And, and she, of course, couldn't talk, but she just went like this. And I said, I love you. And I'm with you. I'm right here. I'm right here. And so another coach who had half a brain came and literally saw her crying, realized she hadn't been put in the game, put her in the game. And she got a hit and she came all the way around the bases because there were so many errors. She called it a home run and so, so be it. Um, but, you know, all turned out well. But something began to shift in me that morning about my own walk with, with God because for so much of my life, and I don't know if it's true of you because you go to a church like this where the love of God is thick. But for so much of my Christian experience, I mean, there were so many rules and there was so much to do. And every time we'd come to church, we'd hear another great sermon and I would add to the list of what I should be doing that I wasn't doing. Or maybe add to the list of what I wasn't doing or what I was doing that I shouldn't be doing. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, it wore me out. It had worn me out spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. And it was in that moment and some other things that God was doing in my experience at that point that began to communicate to me 
that it's not about trying harder. It's not about one more Bible study and getting the best translation of the scripture where you can really understand the word of God or somehow repenting hard enough or weeping hard enough. I mean, all of those things have their place, of course. But it was about knowing these two things, experiencing these two things on a daily basis, that he loves us and that he is with us. And I began to believe that everything good and powerful about the kingdom of God and the God who calls himself our Abba emerges from these two realities that I think all too often get missed in our journeys with Christ because of all the emphasis, especially in Western Christianity, on what we know and how we need to know more and how we need to discipline ourselves to just try harder to get it done, to get it all done. So let's unpack just for a moment this morning what this might look like for us as human beings. First of all, he loves us. Our brother read this text, as the father loved me, I also have loved you. Make your home on my love. These words were spoken to the 11 remaining disciples on the night before Jesus went to the cross, which means these are some of his last words that he ever spoke. And one commentator that I read, it was a 19th century commentator, um, when I was writing the second book, he said, this, this command here is the closest thing to an ethical command out of the mouth of Jesus in the entire Gospel of John, 21 chapters. And he could have said anything. The disciples realize something's going down, and they're going to be left behind. He's going to leave. They're going to be responsible for bringing Jesus to the world. And so they were listening with bated breath. And this is what he said. As the Father has loved me, he could have said anything. As the Father has loved me, I want you to know that I love you. And so what I want you to know that you must be about, if you're going to fight the powers of darkness for the lives of God's sons and daughters as you go forward, if you're going to bring me to our broken world, you've got to, the, the Greek word is meno, it, it, it's often translated abide. The translation the brother read just a moment ago it was remain. Those are both really good translations. I like this one better. He said, you must make your home in my love. And then there's this verse. I don't know where the reference is, but it's 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And then he links that love to the cross and sent his son because of that love to be a sacrifice for our sins. Theologian N.T. Wright says that it was the love of God that took Jesus to the cross. It was his love that kept him on the cross. And when he said it is finished, it was the love that crushed the shame of the powers of darkness and set us free. It was his love that now became our new power. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I have read these verses over the years, and I've often thought of the you being kind of plural. And I don't even know in the Greek text whether these are actually plural, but I can tell you what the intent behind these words are. When he was looking at the disciples, he wasn't just saying he loves you and the whole world. He wasn't just saying he loves you 11. He was saying to Peter, I love you. He was saying to John, I love you. He had just watched Judas's feet trying to help that brother understand, I love you, even though you're planning to betray me. And so this morning, I think it's really important that we just take a moment and say, I mean, most people that come to church, a church like this, are going to say, yes, God loves 
you. But here's the question, I think, really, that defines a portion of our life. Do you know that he loves you? As if you were his only son, as if you were his only daughter, he loves you. My daughters, they've done this all the years that we've been walking together. They will always argue about who's the favorite. And uh, here's the truth. They're all my favorites. And I will sometimes joke with them. Even at 40, 37, and 33, I'll go, don't tell the other two, you're my favorite. But then I tell the other two, don't tell the other two, you're my favorite. Because that's how personal the love of God is for us. This is not, what is going to ground us is not just knowing that he loves the world. We need to know that he loves us. Because that's the way we're wired. That's the way we're made. Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson says, we all come out of the womb looking for someone, looking for us with love and delight. The moment that baby enters the world, he is basically in his or her cry saying, someone tell me who I am by validating me with the way you look at me, the way you touch me, the way you speak to me with love. Kurt Thompson goes on to say, the day I heard him say this in a, in a seminar, he said, I'm 56 years old today, and I'm still looking for the same thing because it's the way God has made us. You came in here this morning, and again, I'm not your daddy. I'm not your pastor. I'm not your, 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 I'm really just a guy to you. But let me just suggest that when you came in here today, whatever you thought you were looking for, you were looking for someone looking for you with love and delight because that's the way we're created in the image of God who is love. Kurt Thompson also says that our brains, he's, he's a brain scientist, are not wired to respond to rules. And yet if you ask the average non-believer on the street, what is Christianity about? And they'll start talking about the rules. And if you ask many Christians, what's Christianity about? And they'll begin to say, well, God taught it with the Ten Commandments and, the way, and all of that is there. But underneath the foundation of all of it, our brains aren't even made to respond to a list that's given to us and, and, and a command to obey. Our brains are, are created to respond to love and the obedience flows out of the sea of that security of love. The gospel stories show us just how personal this is. In fact, this is one of my favorite quotes. Listen to what this guy says. Donald Miller, he's the guy that wrote Blue Like Jazz, for some of you who may have read that. I kept wondering about the people who met Christ who were society's losers. The lame and the blind, the woman at the well, Mary Magdalene and Zacchaeus. Entire communities had shunned them and told them they were no good. But God, the king of the universe, comes walking down the street and looks them in the eye and holds their hands and embraces them and eats at their tables in their homes for all the town to see. That must have been the greatest moment of their lives. Because, my brothers and sisters, to be loved to be personally and deeply and unconditionally loved changes everything. When I came to faith at the age of five, it was in a church in northern Indiana, around the Valparaiso area. It was a winter night. I don't know why I remember that, but it was. 
And I was five years old, sitting back with my parents. And, you know, when you have to bring your kids into big church, it is a good experience. We used to do that in our church in the neighborhood in Detroit, a tough neighborhood. The parents wanted to bring their kids into church, especially for the first part of things. But when the sermon time came, the children usually went off to hear their own word in a way that they could receive it and understand it. But that particular night, we were all in this church listening to the guy up front preach his sermon on whatever. And this is what I can remember. And I want to remind you, I didn't know a lick of theology. I didn't know anything about the doctrine of the inspiration of scriptures. I didn't know anything about theories of the atonement. I didn't even know really what it meant that Jesus died for me. I'd heard that phrase in my home. But I'll tell you what I felt from the guy that was standing there. And I I was already in my home. It was a Christian home, but it was an emotionally jacked up home. Do we understand that you can be saved and be so emotionally broken that you can hardly tell in the way you deal with people that you know the one who has saved you? And that was my home. So I was already a shame-based kid at the age of five. And that night, what I felt, what I felt was the love of Jesus for me from that pastor who I think really loved us, really loved me. And when he gave the invitation in in that era, you know, it was bow your head, raise your hand, or one of those kinds of things. I didn't even know what I was doing when I raised my hand. I didn't know words. I didn't know a sinner's prayer. I didn't know theology. What I I was responding to the love of a God who I finally felt might see me had come walking down the street and came up to me and embraced me. It was the greatest moment of my young life because when we know that we're loved, it changes everything. And then I was, I was shoved back into 30 years, plus years of religious rules. That's just the way it was. I, I went to college and seminary and there were more rules. And then, you know, six years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, three years of Latin. And then there were more rules. And then six years into my first pastorate, one night coming home from a speech or a talk, I almost committed suicide because the rules that I was never meant to respond to had sucked the life out of my spirit And God saved my life that night. Obviously, I didn't finish the task. I came home and I said, Abba, I've got everything, but I have nothing. And through a series of circumstances I don't have time to get into this morning, he showed me that you know a lot, Kev. you got a head full of Bible. You know all the Greek words for love, but what you don't know is that I love you. And I took my first baby steps toward home, and it has changed everything. It saved my life. I wish Carla was here this morning to tell you how it saved our marriage. And it saved our children so that even though there was a long journey of healing, which I'm still on, our kids began to see and feel the love through the father, through this wounded son. And as that love healed me, I was able to give it to them. So now I'm watching them give it to their children's, their children, their children's, their children. It changes everything. So may I invite you this morning, just before we move to the last point, there's no shame in just getting honest about the fact that I know a lot about the love of God. 
it in my home. I never experienced it. I've been in church for years, but I've just never, I've never encountered it in a way that I kind of intuit that my heart is longing for. May I just invite you this morning to get honest before the God who calls himself your Abba, an intimate term of a young child toward his or her father, and cry out to him as I did that day, 1990, 36 years, 32 years ago now, 33 years ago, and just say, Father, I think it's not supposed to be just about my accomplishments and the rules and me continuing to wake up every morning and seeing the Ten Commandments and trying hard to obey them. One more exhausting day. I'm tired, Lord. I'm tired. I'm empty. I've got some habits and some addictions that are trying to fill that up. I've tried to fill it up with church. I've tried to fill it up with, I've tried to make my marriage that which fills up my emptiness. Sports, I've tried to make it. I was an All-American football player. Never filled up the hole. What if... Today, you knew that if you reached out to your Abba, he's already moving toward you. And because you're not me, you're you in a way that he will move toward you as an individual son and daughter. He will take your hand and begin to bring you home to not just knowing about his love, but being filled with his love, which will change everything. That's. Me, with my little granddaughter, Lenny, when she was first born. Her real name is Lennon. My grandson, who's just a couple years older than her, when she walked in the, when she came home, he didn't know how to um, say Lennon, so he called her Lemon. And so all the nicknames we have for her now are like around Lemon, you know, Lemonade, and um, I call her Lemon Cello, for those of you who like a, yeah, if you like that. Anyway, that's what I call her. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If Carla was here afterwards, she goes, why did you say limoncello? Um, but that is what I call her. But here's the deal. Just to put some feeling on this. So, so when my, my daughters, you know, we, we moved there uh, to Denver after 35 years in Michigan pastoring to be with my daughters and my grandchildren who had all migrated there for different reasons. When I go up to them today, when I go up to my 40-year-old, Andrea, I see her quite a bit because we work together in the ministry. When I go up to her and hug her, she doesn't know this because I don't want to embarrass her or put her on the spot. But when I go up to hold her, and every time I see her, I go up and hug her and kiss her and hold her for a moment. That's how I see her. And often I will get choked up. They already think I'm a crybaby, so I don't let them know that I'm getting choked up. But I often get choked up because that's how fathers, when they're healthy, feel about their children. What if that's how God sees you this morning? You might say, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. He does. And he still see. Have you read the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal, the story is there because of those of us who say he could not move toward me like that. If he knew what I did, he knew and he did. And when the son came home and had this big speech of repentance, remember the father says, and he put him in his arms and he squeezed him tight. And the text says he smothered him, not with one kiss. I mean, guys, 20th century guys would be uncomfortable with what the father did back in the ancient Near East. He smothered him with the kisses of compassion. And he said, bring, bring, bring the shoes, the sandals reserved only for family members. Bring the ring, the signet ring of the household. Bring the robe that signifies his sonship. Kill the fatted calf because my son has come home. 
No, hey, you need to go to the school of repentance. You need to change your ways. No, my son made a movement toward me in his emptiness, her emptiness, my daughter. And I met them there, smothering them with my love. And now I'm going to invite them never to leave home again to live their journey, to live the journey with Jesus from these arms of compassionate love. Back in the hood, when we'd have a baby dedication, I'd take a little baby like that. I know most of the congregation was worried that I would be dropping this child. I just know it. That's what they were thinking because they knew me to be a bit clumsy. But I never did drop one. So there. Um, And I would hold that baby up in the congregation by the end. They knew what was coming. And I would say, and it would get very quiet. Folks from the neighborhood, uh, drug addicts, I mean, everyone that could pay attention very quiet and I would hold that child up and and then I would say by the way this baby here is you and for a moment envision me as your heavenly father and then it would get so quiet and I would take that baby and I would just I would just smother that baby with kisses the pause in the room is so pregnant people would start to weep every time because they are taken to a place inside themselves where they realize this is what I'm longing for. My brothers and sisters, I'm here to announce today. You've heard it before. Maybe this is a day that you can respond. More important than any piece of obedience is beginning to realize that you are a beloved daughter and a beloved son of a God who calls himself your Abba. It changes everything. And then secondly, that one who loves us is with us. There you go. Matthew 28, 20. Some of the last words that Jesus said, I am with you to the disciples. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Question, is it a metaphor? Like I'm sort of with you. Thank you. I'm sort of with you. Like I'm way out there somewhere in heaven, wherever that is. And so when you're down here in pain, I'm looking down and I've got super eyes because I'm, 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 I'm Jesus, the son of God. And I see you. And so I'm shouting to you. I'm with you because think of the old spiritual. I've got the whole world in my hands. Can I tell you, if I told my daughter Leanne, when she was afraid of thunderstorms, baby, I'm with you. I'm just two floors up in our bed. She would say that is not being with me. She wanted to climb in our bed to be truly with me. So I, I'll tell you more about why in a moment. I'm believing that when Jesus said, I will be with you, he was envisioning these 10 of these brothers who are going to be martyred in horrific ways, history tells us. In that moment, you can be sure I will be not out there saying, I got you. I will be right across the veil in glory with you as you come home to me. And then, of course, there's this verse. There's so many, but um, Philippians 4, 5 through 7. The Lord is near, taken for years by the commentary traditions as the return of the Lord is near. But the Greek word that's translated near doesn't by nature demand that it's the return that is near. The context determines what it's meant by the nearness. And in this context, the Lord is near. The next line, be anxious for nothing. Why? Why do you have to be anxious for nothing? Because the Lord is near. The one who loves you 
He's right here. He's right here. But in everything, by prayer, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Which God? The one who is near? The one who is right there? And then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But the whole key to this passage is not God, you know, cherry-picking our prayer requests and deciding which ones he's going to answer the way we want him to answer them. The peace doesn't come from the answers. It comes from his presence. The ones we love... We long to be near, and so it has been with God in biblical history. Genesis 2.25, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They were sitting there with the Spirit of God, arms around them, and living their lives without shame. And then the Exodus, the people of God leaving Egypt, they... they they were, I mean, they were, they were exiles, and they didn't know where they were going. And yet, God was present, wasn't He? In the, the cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night. And then, and then, God promised them a temple. Why? Because God likes big buildings. No, that's not why. Because the temple was going to be the place, the Holy of Holies, where God's Spirit came and lived. And so the pilgrimages to the temple from, from uh, the diaspora of, of, of Jews all over the world was to go and be near the presence of God. And of course, when Solomon finally built the temple, he said, no building can actually hold you. Yes, that is true. He knew that cosmic truth. Nevertheless, there was a special way that God showed up in that temple so that he could be near his people. And then, of course, the Christmas story. Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The problem is, I think most of the time, we have somehow adopted, I know it was true for me, a worldview that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he took off like a rocket ship and ended up somewhere out there in the Milky Way galaxy. But what, my brothers and sisters, don't have time to unpack this totally, but what if heaven is not out here, but heaven is right here? What if the two on the road to Emmaus, you know that story, those guys were, it might have been a man and a wife, I don't, a husband and a wife, they were devastated because they'd lost their Messiah. The hope of Israel was gone. He was dead now. They didn't know about the resurrection. And so they're walking along. Jesus feels their pain. I always read that is he came from wherever he was out there and swooped down and appeared to them. What if he was there all the time? And simply chose to open the veil so that the two could see him and commune with him and feel his presence. When Stephen was martyred, the first martyr, outside of, Lord, take this pain away from me. What do you think Stephen longed for was the presence of the one that he was dying for? To know that you love me, Father. To know that you love me, Christ, and that you are with me. I can take any pain. And so what happens well, I always read it that Jesus came down from that place, wherever the right hand of the Father is, and swooped down and made an appearance to Stephen. I think he was already there. So that all he did is open the veil and say, Stephen, I want you to see me in this last hour. When my sister-in-law, Paula, a beautiful follower of Jesus Christ, who was prayed for by every church in the county in northern Indiana, and finally got to the point where we got a text one day that, there was nothing else they could do. And I remember texting her and saying, I'm so sorry, sis. What I'm praying, Paula, is this, that you will not be afraid. And she texted me back, oh, 
for sure I am not afraid. You know what I believe? The Jesus who promised to be with the disciples and us always was right there in that bed with her as she slipped away. She wasn't not afraid because she was overwhelmed with, you know, all the effects of chemo, everything you can imagine was horrifying. Some of you have known folks, some of you have experienced and come back, you know what I'm talking about. It wasn't that. It wasn't that he was going to answer her prayer to heal her. I think in that moment she had begun to release that. The peace in that moment did not come from any of those things that we usually associate with peace. It came, I'm convinced, from her knowing that Jesus loved her in that moment and that he was absolutely with her. How would it change our lives if we could know in no matter what situation we find ourselves in, even the things this morning that we're worried about in the future that we're thinking, will it be all right? I don't know if it's going to be all right. You don't know if it's going to be all right. But what if we could know the one who loves me in that tough moment will be right there by my side? To know that the one who loves us is with us, my brothers and sisters, changes everything. So before we land this plane, let me, would you indulge me just a moment? My, I wanted to read these two paragraphs for you out of this book that I, that I wrote. If you want more, you can purchase a copy back there at the desk. <laughs> Forget I said that. My wife, my wife had cancer. It was a rare cancer, less than a hundred documented cases in the entire world. We went to the University of Michigan, which is quite, uh, it's the Mayo Clinic of the, of the Michigan area. And they had never seen this cancer before. We didn't know how treatments were going to work. We didn't know what to do. But um, well, I'll tell you what I did. I told the Lord, and don't judge me for this, I told the Lord that if, if he didn't heal her, I wasn't talking to him. I'm done. And I heard somebody giggle. It, it does sound kind of funny, doesn't it? And for a month, I didn't talk to him. And then one day, I won't go into the detail, I couldn't live with that way of being any longer. And so in the middle of my living room, I, I looked up at him and I just said, I can't live not being with you, but I'm telling you, I, want, I don't know what, I, what I'm going to do without my girl, my best friend. And, and honestly, I didn't hear these words, but I, these, this is what impressed me to the point that I wrote it down. I'm not going to tell you if I'm going to heal your wife. That's not for you to know. That's between me and her. But this I can promise you. I love you both with all of my heart, and I will never, ever leave you. I said, okay, fine. So we went to our first chemo appointment after her surgery. This is what I wrote. This is what I felt. Anxiety in that moment in the chemo ward at University of Michigan wasn't my only companion. I can't really explain how I knew, but Jesus was near. Of course, I didn't see him and hear him as I might see and hear a friend over a cup of coffee. Nevertheless, the reality of his presence was substantial, striking, certain it was as if he walked between us, one arm around Carla's shoulders and the other arm around mine. As we passed by fellow strugglers on crutches in wheelchairs, some who had lost hair, weight, and limbs, and some who seemed to have lost hope. 
It was as if Jesus pulled me close, nodded his head in the direction of the others, and whispered, I've got you and Carla. Why don't you spend some time this morning praying for all of them? It was one of the most remarkable moments of my life. His loving presence secured me in my insecurity, even while giving me courage to let go of my self-absorption for a moment and partner with him on behalf of the brokenness all around. I'll never forget it. Before that exceptional morning, I'm not sure how I would have defined the peace of God. Since that day, I know for sure it isn't the absence of fear, but instead trust in and often a profound awareness of the actual presence of Jesus. Now I know that peace isn't a spiritual commodity shipped to us like an Amazon package from some distant corner of the universe if we pray hard enough or read enough Bible verses. In fact, peace isn't a commodity at all. Peace is himself. Peace is his certain presence in the valley of the shadows, letting us know that because of his powerful love, the darkness cannot and will not win. It changes everything. And so very quickly, changes the way we are with ourselves and God. This is a picture of me back in the day when men wore mom jeans, and I had a pair on here. But this is my oldest daughter, Leanne, or Andrea, and this is my middle daughter, Leanne, who is now a therapist. Look, that isn't the kind of beach you take your family on vacation to. There's fog, there's rocks, there's metal, there's scariness. But look at those little girls. We're not talking. I'm not telling them what's, in a, what's ahead. They are holding the hand of their Abba. I'm not dictating to them what they ought to do, need to do, should do, might do, could do, or else. They're holding the hand of their loving Father who is with them and walking into the mist of that day because they know that I love them and that I'm with them. No matter what comes, I love them and I'm with them. What if that, what if we never have to flinch again in our walk with God? What if this can be our experience with a God who loves us and is with us all the way home? It changes the way we are with the body of Christ. All the one another passages that you have gone through, they're amazing. We did that series back in the day. And it's so important because Jesus said the way we treat one another is what draws the world to to Christ. And yet, my brothers and sisters, if we've come to the end of that series and we're just going, okay, I got my list. I keep it in my purse, keep it in my wallet, keep it in my backpack. And when I get with one of the one another's, I'm going to pull it out and see which one of those I should be doing. And by golly, I'm going to do it. Good luck with that. What if your movement toward the brothers and sisters in Christ that sit here, even when they are not your favorite person, when they are stealing your joy, when they are imposing their stuff on you, their baggage, their hurt, their wound, what if knowing that your Christ is with you and loves you, What if that's how the one another's flow out of you 
toward brothers and sisters in Christ, even those that you literally cannot seem to stand. I remember back in the day, we had a men's group. These men were really going deep, and they were learning about the love and presence of Christ. And one night in the middle of a meeting, these two guys had to wrestle with so much father stuff. They're very gifted guys, strong men. One guy got up off the couch, came over, and picked up the other guy. This guy's name was Dave. This guy's name was Chris. Picked him up, held him, in, sat down, held him in his lap, and rocked him like he was a little baby boy. Some of you, especially brothers, are very uncomfortable with what I'm saying right now. And finally, Dave, the guy that had done this, even backed off, and he said, Chris, maybe that was too much. And Chris says, you don't understand. I've been waiting for someone to do that to me my entire life. How did Dave know the Christ who loves him and who is with him moved him toward his brother in Christ? I can't wait to come back and hear about how many of you have rocked one another. I'm making a joke here. But in so many words, have rocked one another because of his love and presence with you. And then finally, lastly, it changes the way we are with the world. It changes the way we share Jesus. And so I was at an airport a few years ago, got there early, had a dinner. The waitress, I could feel her pain. And so at the end of the dinner, I tipped her big on the card, went up to the front, asked the maitre d' to call the waitress up front. A little nervous because I didn't want her to think I was a creeper, but I just felt so compelled. She came up, and I looked her in the eye and first said, hey, I'm, I have daughters. I'm, I'm safe. But do you mind if I share something with you? And she said, of course. I said, as you were walking around um, serving me tonight, you did a great job, but I could feel your pain. And I just want you to know that I believe there's a God who sees your pain, who loves you there, is with you there, and wants you to know that you're not alone. And before I could slip another 20 into her hand, her, her hands flew up to her face, and she started to sob and ran out of the restaurant to the restroom that was just right down the road. And I had to catch a plane, so I, I had to go. And I've not seen her again. And you might say, well, what happened? I can tell you what I think happened. I think for one of the first times in her grown-up life, maybe ever, she began to experience what might be true, that someone might love her and someone might be with her. She might be loved and not alone. And I believe that day, every time I go to that airport, I walk through and look for her. I believe that day, just because of the love and the presence of Christ, she took her first steps toward home. No more proselytizing. No more, you got to do this. I need to convince you of that. The love and presence of Jesus will move you toward a broken world that is longing for that same love and that same presence. So hopefully this last illustration will help land this plane. This is my grandson, Mac. He's about eight years old now. He's about three there. And we were getting ready to go down this little fair in the neighborhood, this little fair, like this lawn fair. And he's ready to go, man. He's got his backpack. That little thing is a bug finder, you know, on his forehead. He is ready to do the thing. So when we got down there, there's this big lawn, and there were booths. And one guy had brought his snakes, you know, to, to you know, let people touch. People are curious about snakes to let people touch. I know I saw a sister over here just go, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what Max said. Max saw that snake, and he's standing here with me, his papa. And he said, this is what he said to me. I'll never forget it. He said, Papa, I don't want to touch that snake. 
And I said, that's, that's okay, son. You don't have to touch that snake. As he started walking toward the snake and all the way over, and I followed him all the way there. And he kept saying to me, his eyes were on that snake. He kept walking toward the snake and he kept saying, I don't want to touch that snake, Papa. And I kept saying right behind him, you don't have to touch that snake, son. It's okay. But then we got up near the snake. Now, he had changed his hat by that time. and I, I can't remember why. He, he's a hat kid. He had another hat in his backpack. But there he is. There's the guy with the snake. And I'm standing right behind him. And here's what I know, because I'm a grandfather. He wants to touch that snake. He wants to face his greatest fear. Deep down inside all of us, that's what we don't want to live in fear of our greatest fear. We want to courageously move into that fear and find out that maybe Christ is there and it's okay. So I said, Bud, you know your papa loves you, right? He said, yeah. I said, and I'm right here. What if I hold out my hand and you put your hand on my hand and we'll touch that snake together? Your papa and, me, your papa and you, we'll touch that snake together. He said, okay, papa. So here we are. That's little Max hand and we're touching that snake. Now who that photo bomber is, I have no idea. But they ruined a perfectly good um, uh, preaching picture. What if you knew? What if you literally could feel like Mac touching my hand could know I was there and that I loved him and that my love would take care of him? What would the darkness look like? What would the valley of the shadow that you might be facing today or tomorrow or next week if you knew he loves you and he's with you? So last picture, I turned around to tell my wife, do you see what just happened with little Mac? When I turned back... He touched that snake all by himself. What if we got to the point where we didn't have to necessarily have a vision of his presence? Like Stephen, like the two on the road to Emmaus. What if we grew to the point where we trusted his loving presence? So wherever we moved into the valley of the shadow of death, on the way to green pastures and still waters, we could trust and know that he was there and we could face the darkness. These two things I leave with you. He loves you, each of you. He loves you. He's with you. He's with you all the way home. These two things change everything. My father, as we move toward the table of your son now, as we converge there at the pinnacle of our worship, might we be reminded by the, this body and this blood, this wafer and this juice of your presence. You said, this is my body. This is my blood. Might we be reminded when we come to the table today that this supper that we celebrate regularly is to remind us of the two most important realities that you love us and that you are with us all the way home. I commit us now to your care, especially to that one today who's saying, could this really be true for me? Speak, Abba, to that lonely son or daughter, that yes, son, yes, daughter, you too. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. <laughs>